0: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Dark as Hell. If you're new here, well, welcome to your first doll rodeo. <laughs> I'm your host, Maggie, and this week, you have my dad to thank for the topic of this week's case because I'm telling you a story that happened closer to home than any parent would be comfortable with, including my own. There's nothing like a New England summer. As a born- and bred East Coast girl, I'm personally more partial to fall myself. I love the colorful explosions of leaves, that particular crisp bite and scent in the air when the calendar flips to October, the cozy oversized sweaters, truly just all of it. But there is something that's just so distinctly unique about summers in New England. I grew up in Rhode Island and while we do live up to our Ocean State nickname with our 40 miles of coastline, it can honestly be said that throughout the region of New England, Summers look similar no matter what state you're in. They're spent with buttery, toasted lobster rolls and briny oysters in hand, raspberry lime rookies on deck, that distinct salty tang in the air that only the Atlantic Ocean produces, and also bizarrely being fine with the idea of eating a cup of clam chowder on a 90-degree day. It's an aesthetic and, dare I say, a New England thing. All of these things, and probably so many more, were most likely well-known and well-loved by another born-and-bred New Englander, a 16-year-old girl looking forward to the start of another Massachusetts summer, one filled with piled high ice cream cones, backyard bonfires, sitting in traffic while driving to the beach with sweet Caroline blasting as hard as the AC, and starting her new summer job as a lifeguard at a local swimming hole. Yes, Molly Bish was most likely looking forward to all of this and more in the summer of 2000. But this simple New England summer wouldn't turn out that way for her or her family or even the entire region as one of the most extensive searches swept through it with two questions on everyone's mind after June 27th. Where was Molly Bish and what had happened to her? Let's get ready to get dark as hell. In the summer of 2000, Molly Bish seemed to have an idyllic few months ahead of her. She'd just finished her junior year of high school, was enjoying her fledgling romance with her boyfriend of three months, Steve Lucas, and before her attention turned to college applications in the fall, she was tackling another rite of passage in the form of her stereotypical summer job, serving as a lifeguard in her community. Molly's older brother, John, who had been the lifeguard at Cummins Pond for three years, had passed out the job to her, and Molly was frankly thrilled about it. It seemed like the perfect summer job for the popular, outgoing teenager. She was an accomplished athlete, a documented, well-trained swimmer, and in their little Worcester County town of Warren, Massachusetts, the idea of being trusted with this responsibility felt like a big deal to her. She took her role very seriously, and she had no desire to do anything to mess it up, even on the morning of June 27th. When her mother woke her up with the upsetting news that one of her friends had been hit by a car while biking to her own summer job and was currently in critical condition. Molly was shaken up for sure, but she knew it was a big day at the pond. It was the first day of swim lessons and her eighth day as the on-duty guard, so she felt obligated to put on a brave face despite the news, and especially since she felt she was running late as it was. Maggie Bish, Molly's mother, drove her daughter that morning since Molly didn't have her license yet. The mother-daughter duo made two stops before getting to Cummins Pond that morning. At 9.50 a.m., they were spotted on a gas station video surveillance system as they picked up a few water bottles for Molly's day by the water. Immediately after, they drove to the local police station where Molly picked up her two-way radio. This was the only form of communication Molly had while on duty and that worked in the secluded area of the pond. Just as her shift started at 10 a.m., Molly and Maggie arrived at the pond's parking lot. Save for a dump truck delivering a load of sand, Cummins Pond was an made, which is what called for the delivery, the area was empty. Molly gathered her things, told her mother that she loved her, and headed over to the small beach area where she usually set up her station. Maggie waited for the dump truck to leave, and then she too departed. The image of her daughter in her classic lifeguard one piece jogging over towards the pond shore would be the last time Maggie would see her daughter, and it would be the last time she would be seen alive. It was just a few minutes later that the first arrival of the day swimmers arrived for their lessons. As mothers slathered their kids with sunscreen, no one gave any mind to the set-up lifeguard station, despite no lifeguard being there. The group of mothers figured the lifeguard of the day had just run off to the bathroom or some other much small duty just before they arrived, and they didn't think much of it. By 10.20, though, with still no appearance of the lifeguard, something started to feel off. Molly herself wasn't actually teaching the lessons, but the group of mothers weren't too crazy about the fact that there wasn't a lifeguard still watching over the kids. One of the mothers, Sandra Woodworth, Assumed the position of lifeguard herself while they waited for Molly to appear. Quote The first aid kit was wide open, backpack was on the bench, her towel was draped over the back of the chair, the sandals were in the front, the Poland Springs water bottle was right there, Woodworth would later tell CBS News. But there was no Molly. Swim lessons began, and so too did the chatter of the mothers wondering where Molly could have gone. Some assumed she probably just ditched for the day or that she'd run off to hang out with friends instead. Others knew about the accident that Molly's friend had been in. Had she somehow managed to catch a ride or otherwise get over to the hospital to see the injured friend? A little after 11, Sandra Woodworth decided someone needed to know that Molly was, for all appearances, abandoning her post. She used the two-way radio to call over the airwaves and got in touch with Ed Fett head of Parks Commission, and also Molly's boss. Fett, knowing how reliable and responsible Molly was, immediately headed over to the pond. By 11.44 a.m., he knew something wasn't just off. Something was wrong. After seeing what the scene on the pond shower looked like for himself, he too used the two-way radio, this time to call the Warren Police Department, and he only had a few words for them the lifeguard is missing from Cummins Pond. Being the small and sleepy town that Warren was, the Warren Police Department showed up to Cummins Pond eventually. They, much like the group of mothers who had arrived earlier in the morning, weren't necessarily super concerned at first. Much like the mothers again, they too had a cavalcade of ideas of just where Molly Bish had gone off to. Because obviously, She had simply just run off with friends, gone off to meet her boyfriend. Nothing more in their mind than some kids being kids behavior that was, if anything, more annoying than it was hair raising. By the time the Warren PD arrived, Ed Fett had taken it upon himself to go through Molly's belongings, as well as the first aid kit. You, my true crime crew, are probably cringing just as much as I am right now at that. In fact, this innocent perusal of Molly's things and the trampling through the beachfront area the morning of June 27th, the whole idea makes me cringe. And trust me, we will get to this later. The small town mentality worked against the police and investigators back in 2000, because truth be told, the idea anything truly nefarious had happened here was the farthest thing from anyone's minds. So they took none of the precautions one normally would take because they didn't see this as a crime scene there were so many other supposed logical theories why would anyone rush to assume that molly had been abducted they were so initially unbothered by molly having wandered off that at 1 p.m the chief of police called maggie Bish to ask almost laughingly where's molly and to that maggie had no answer She, as well as her husband, John, who was a respected probation officer in the community, were shocked to hear that Molly had been missing for three hours at this point. Quote, Alarms went off. We just knew something wasn't right, Maggie later said. Quickly, as only a mother can, she began jumping into action. Both Bish parents refuted the idea the police had that Molly simply ditched work to see her friends and promised that they'd be at Cummins Pond immediately. Maggie called Heather, Molly's older sister, who began placing calls of her own to the hospital to see if Molly really had gone there, around to some of Molly's friends to see if they had any idea where she was, and she even zipped over to Steve Lucas's house, Molly's boyfriend at the time. They all had the same answer. Nobody had seen or heard from Molly at all. The scene at Cummins Pond began to get chaotic as the afternoon wore on, The bishes arrived, as did several other locals, and all began vouching for Molly's character and dedication to her lifeguarding job. According to Heather, quote, this was a girl who gave up her Saturdays at 16 to go train to become a lifeguard. She took her work very seriously. There's not a doubt in my mind that she would have done anything to jeopardize that. Maggie also stated that, quote, she would never just leave her job. We knew it. We knew and I kept saying, something is very wrong. And there was something very wrong. Something very wrong in regards to one crucial detail that had begun to unnerve some of the Warren police officers. unnerved them to the point where they too started to believe that something was very, very wrong. Because if Molly really had just run off with her friends, why in the world would she have left her shoes behind? Anxiety and tension rose Quickly once everyone started to realize how innocent the scenario actually wasn't. And it's here that, despite the slow and unbothered start they initially took, I have to shout out the Warren PD. Once they recognized how wrong things truly were, they immediately called for outside help in the form of the Massachusetts State Police and their band of troopers. <laughs> Led by Tom Green, who was the lead investigator for the case from the Stadies. He admitted that their arrival that afternoon became, quote, a pretty dramatic scene. Local police had finally begun to barricade the crime scene. Local fire teams had arrived, as had support from Brookfield, a nearby town. And of course, the trooper detectives from the state police had begun combing the area with a new question in mind. If Molly hadn't run off into town, was she going to be found right there in Cummins Pond after all? By this time, news of Molly's disappearance had reached her brother John, the one who had previously held her position as the pond's lifeguard. He too arrived at the scene, and knowing the direction of thought the investigation was heading in, as divers were already in the pond, he ran directly into the water, desperately trying to see, quote, for himself, if Molly had somehow managed to drown. John literally and physically had to be pulled out of the lake and That image of a brother searching for his sister's body is just like so utterly haunting to me. The divers and rescue boats, however, turned up nothing. And given how athletic Molly was, combined with the training she had done for the lifeguarding position, no one had truly expected her to have somehow inexplicably drowned in the short time span that she had been alone by the edge of the water. At this, giving up the search in the water, the search on land began in earnest. Though no one knew what would have drawn her there, the searchers began combing through the woods adjacent to the pond to see if any sign or clue of where Molly was could be found. As it was, though, with the late arrival of the Stadies and the summer sun setting them into darkness, the search was suspended and they had to admit defeat for the day. A whole day in which no one was any closer to knowing where Molly was. The next day, June 28th, would begin what would become the largest and most expensive search in Massachusetts state history. Even more resources were deployed to help in the search for Molly Bish. The official search party had grown into the hundreds. Mounted officers, AKA officers on horseback, a trooper air wing and helicopter with infrared camera imaging were all utilized. Molly was the daughter of a probation officer so the desire to help find her was even higher among the force than usual. The small town itself also banded together. Seemingly overnight, missing persons posters with Molly's picture appeared throughout Warren and dozens of smaller unofficial searches aided the official police capacity. As Heather later said, quote, the it takes a village mindset came out in full force to help find one of their own. Cummins Pond is a small lake and like I said earlier, it's man-made, which helped support local fishing activities and located in a pretty isolated area that's surrounded by thick, dense forest. The forest had initially been searched the night before, but the surrounding area in the light of day drew questions from investigators. Leading up from the beach, there was a main paved path that twisted and turned throughout the forest. Some ways into the woods, you would come upon a fork. One way featured more trails into the trees, And the other was the paved path that continued towards a small local cemetery. Alongside the cemetery was a road that was so unassuming, you might almost think it wasn't even there. The discovery of this path, combined with the opened and abandoned first aid kit, had the cogs turning in the state's brains. And then Maggie Bish offered up a piece of information that began to turn the investigation entirely on its head. And raise even more hashtag fucking questions. Two days before, on June 25th, that Monday had started out just like any other of that summer. Molly was off to lifeguard, and Maggie drove her over to Cummins Pond for her 10 a.m. start time. However, unlike any other normal day, Maggie was surprised to see a car already in the parking lot. A white sedan was idling, and as Maggie pulled up a few spots over. She met the gaze of a moustached man with dark eyes and a cigarette dangling from his mouth. Actually, according to Maggie, it wasn't really a gaze that she met at all. The man in the white car was positively glaring at her as their car came to park so Molly could hop out. Immediately, Maggie was uncomfortable and felt, quote, creeped out. Especially when, as she watched her daughter cross over to the beach where she normally set up, she realized this guy was also watching Molly. And that didn't fly with Maggie. She got out of her car, and under the guise of chatting with Molly while she set up, she waited for the man in the white car to leave. Her mother's instincts were roaring at her that this dude was as creepy as they came, but she didn't dare say anything to Molly for fear of upsetting her or overstepping into her new job that she was so proud of. Minutes passed, the man didn't leave, And Maggie felt caught, unsure of what to do. She headed back to her own car, stalling by futzing around in her purse, playing with the radio. Anything to waste further time in the hopes the white car guy would get that fucking hint and leave. As her discomfort reached almost fever pitch, the mustache man finally did get the hint and drove away after an almost 20-minute silent standoff with a now-relieved Maggie. Maggie. She filed the incident away as a worried mother would, and again, as a worried mother, she told police about this encounter that took place the day before Molly vanished, just two days earlier. This incident, that first aid kit left opened, and the path through the forest up to the isolated cemetery road, a new picture was taking shape in investigators' minds, and with it, a new theory. In this small, sleepy New England town, Had Molly Bish been abducted? Did this abductor fake an injury and approach Molly seeking some medical assistance? After distracting her with this injury, had she then been forced through the forest to a waiting car? It's a theory that John Bish, Molly's father, certainly ascribed to. According to a piece with CBS News, he thinks, quote, the kidnapper forced her up the cemetery trail since her shoes were left behind. He says that he'd never voluntarily have gone barefoot up that hill. Police had to admit, the theory seemed incredibly likely. Quickly, investigators had Maggie sit down with a composite artist, and an image of who this man might be began to emerge. He had salt and pepper hair, according to Maggie, and looked about to be 50 years old. She remembered the dark eyes, his mustache, and the composite artist was able to create a sketch that not only Maggie recognized, but so too did some other locals. As the sketch circulated, two cemetery workers came forward to confirm that they had also seen the man pictured in the sketch, as well as the white car Maggie had described. The man and his car had been spotted at the end of the paved path through the forest that led out to the cemetery. Not only that, but they had seen him a few times in the days leading up to Molly's disappearance. It was all the police needed, as they set up a roadblock into and out of town, stopping anyone to ask if they had seen the man in his white car. Another witness came forward to say that they had seen him too. This time, the mustache man in his car had been seen at a car wash at the base of Cummins Pond. Over 125 white cars were searched as the tips began to pour in both locally and nationally. The composite sketch had begun circulating throughout the country. Thousands of leads started to crop up, and with those leads, hours and hours of investigating all of them. There were almost too many leads, if such a thing is possible. All of these leads, though, led back to one important matter, the evidence from the scene at Cummins Pond. Or maybe more accurately, the evidence that they didn't have. As District Attorney John Conti put it, quote, We have 4,000 leads in a database. We're looking for evidence we don't have it. This lack of evidence is one of the most frustrating aspects of the case, mainly because the lack of it is quite honestly, due to well-intentioned Warren locals who had no idea the nightmare that they had come upon that Tuesday morning at the pond. A group of mothers, Ed Fed and first responders like, effectively ruined any evidence that would have been found at the scene because they didn't realize that they were at a crime scene. From Sandra Woodworth touching Molly's whistle as she assumed the lifeguard role in what they thought was a willing absence, Ed Fett rummaging through her first aid kit and other belongings, and the first officers on the scene who trampled through the sand, all of it was contaminated because the scene wasn't locked down. Any footprint impressions that had been left on the sand were marred by the officers' boot prints, just as any crucial prints on the cemetery footpath had been contaminated by those first responding any small detail found on the beach, like a cigarette butt, for example, could no longer be trusted as untainted evidence by the very accidental contamination of the scene at large. Her chair was moved, her things were touched. What if the abductor had leaned onto the chair in his struggle to subdue Molly? What if they brushed hands in the first aid kit? None of it was viable, and that's one of the coolest turns of this case those who never imagined something so terrible could happen, they had inadvertently destroyed crucial evidence that could have helped in Molly's search. And because so much potential evidence had been destroyed, it left police no option but to entertain any and every theory or tip that came their way. Some of those tips, like the suggestion Molly had run away voluntarily thanks to an influx of reported sightings throughout the country, were easy to discredit both with ambitious help and a small bit of digging by detectives. Others, well, they gave investigators pause. The working theory police followed in the early days of Molly's disappearance centered around the idea that Molly had been attacked and forced against her will to leave Cummins Pond. This person, police theorized, had to have known Cummins Pond, had to have almost a local's knowledge of the area in order to have pulled off this abduction. Molly arrived at the pond at almost 10 a.m. on the dot, and in the span of just a short few minutes, she had vanished. What are the odds that this was an opportunistic kidnapping? Molly had also only been working as the lifeguard for eight days when she disappeared. Someone, it was suggested, had to have been familiar with her schedule, had to have truly planned out this abduction in a truly predatory manner. Someone had to have been paying close attention to Molly. That much was clear. As these things go, detectives turned their attention to the men in Molly's life. Namely, her supervisor, Ed Fett, and her boyfriend, Steve Lucas. Ed was the first to arrive in the scene after hearing of Molly's MIA status through Sandra Woodworth. He had rummaged through her first aid kit and had used her two-way radio. So his prints were already all over the scene. In a strange twist that almost highlights exactly how unbothered most people initially were, Ed had actually gone into town during the first three hours of Molly's disappearance and ran directly to her brother John at the local hardware store. For whatever reason, Ed didn't mention Molly not being at the pond to him. And honestly, I have to sidebar here because why the hell not? Even though the idea at the time was that Molly must have just run off to see her friends, I'd still think to make a comment about it to her own brother to see if he could shed any light on the situation. Ed Fett was later cleared as a suspect by the Stadies, but I still find that whole interaction strange, and I have to wonder how the investigation might have changed entirely if the family knew more immediately about Molly's disappearance, rather than hours later. The investigators also immediately began checking out Molly's boyfriend, Steve Lucas. The family admitted that they had some reservations about Steve when the two first started dating as they seemed very different. Steve was quiet to Molly's outgoing nature. He was shy while Molly was popular. Maggie Bish said that she'd never had a reason to up and out dislike him, but she stated that he, quote, wasn't the one I'd pick for her. The morning of Molly's disappearance, Heather Bish actually showed up at Steve's house Desperate to know if he'd heard from her that morning, appearing to have only just woken up, Steve said that he hadn't. And that was about it. (laughs) He made no offer to help or go with Heather on that first morning. And I mean, I know it's difficult to judge the meaning behind someone's behavior when they're allegedly going through a crisis or a shock. But like, dude, your girlfriend is missing I know you just woke up like the sleep-addicted teenager you are, but, like, let's put a pep in our step, please. (laughs) Throughout the initial days of the investigation, more than just the police had their eye on Steve. Admittedly, the whole town found his behavior just more than slightly off. During a police interview, it was noticed that he had a cut on his lip. And what brought even more notice of the cut was the fact that Steve kept changing the story about how he got it his eyebrow ring was missing as well, and after an initial interview, he stopped cooperating with police. Suspicious? (laughs) Deaf. But admittedly, I've never bought the idea Steve had anything to do with Molly's disappearance, despite all of these red flags popping up. If anything, his reactions ring true to form for some surly teenage behavior more than anything else in my mind. He was a decently scrawny dude, And I'm not too sure he would have been able to subdue Molly fully, what with how athletic she was. And what teenage boy would be able to pull off this detailed of a plan as it was starting to appear? Teenage boys can't even get the hint to ask their girlfriends to prom and no, I am not still bitter. How could he have managed to pull off a kidnapping that was stumping the state trooper force? Steve also passed a polygraph test, and I know that basically means jack shit, but Still, it's worth mentioning. And coming to his defense, D.A. John Conti then came out and declared Steve was not a suspect. Eventually, though, he shipped out of town to stay with his father in Connecticut. In order to escape the shadow and suspicion certain townspeople just couldn't let go of. And in 2008, eight years after Molly's disappearance, Steve Lucas would be dead, the victim of a tragic car accident. Two suspects ruled out. Where to go now? The town of Warren had, according to Detective Tom Green, quote, a disproportionate number of sexual offenders who lived in the area at the time. With Molly's father being a probation officer, could he be the linchpin to all of this? Had one of John's probationers tried to exact revenge against him by harming Molly? Not quite, but it was a good start. John was well-respected throughout the community, and that included the people whose probation he oversaw. Everyone who had fallen under his jurisdiction was interviewed and, quote, most had the best to say about him. So investigators began to focus on the local sex offender population instead, which might single-handedly be the most awful phrase I have ever had to say. The problem with the sex offender is one of fucking many, no doubt, was with how many alibis a number of them provided that the police just couldn't exactly back up or verify. With almost all of the sex offenders being unemployed, there were no payrolls, telephone records, and few people who could credibly back up any alibi one would present to police. It was another dead end in the middle of a case that presented almost limitless possibilities with the leads still pouring in. It didn't even matter if one door closed because so many were still open and being investigated for any sign or any true clue to give concrete credence to what might have happened to Molly. The headquarters the Stadies had created out of the little department of Warren's own force was filled with officers who felt that they were practically living there as every day was consumed with finding any sort of answer or insight about where Molly was. Eventually, though, the troopers returned to their own base in Worcester and continued to investigate from there. With so many leads and so few answers, it began to feel like the norm as the weeks, the months, and then the years dragged on, all while Molly remained missing. And then, three years later, in May 2003, it happened. The first tangible lead of answering the question of what happened to Molly and it was closer to home than anyone could have imagined. In May, 2003, hundreds of tips were still pouring in regularly to the Warren PD and the Massachusetts State Police regarding Molly's disappearance. But to do justice to the events that would unfold over the first few weeks of the summer in 2003, I have to sidebar with you and tell you about something that happened 10 years earlier in 1993 because in 1993, another young blonde girl went missing, just a few towns over from where Molly lived. Holly Paranian was in Sturbridge, Massachusetts, visiting her grandparents on August 5, 1993. Though she lived in Grafton, the Paranian family often rented the same cottage close to their grandparents in Sturbridge during the summers. In 93, Holly was 10 years old, And when she and her brother Zachary heard that a neighbor just down the road from her grandparents had a new litter of Collie puppies to show off, she couldn't have been more excited and I am right there with her. (laughs) She and her five-year-old brother took off down the street at around 11.45 a.m. with their father Richard watching them go. A little bit after 12, Zachary appeared back at their grandparents' house without Holly. Richard asked Zachary where Holly was, and all he could say was that Holly had, quote, told him to go home. Only a little perturbed, Richard sent Holly and Zach's older brother, Andrew, to go wrangle her away from the pups, worried she might be overstaying her welcome at the neighbor's more than anything. Andrew loped off, and he, too, arrived back a few minutes later without Holly. She was nowhere to be seen or found. All that Andrew had managed to find was one of the little sneakers she had been wearing throughout the morning. When Maureen Lemieux, their grandmother, heard about the shoe, a chill ran through her. Just a week before, Holly had attended a 4-H camp, where during one segment, a counselor discussed safety tips with the children. Holly had told Maureen that this counselor had advised the children that if they were ever kidnapped, they should try to leave something of theirs behind which is kind of brilliant, but also hella morbid to be telling children. However, with the appearance of the sneaker and no sign of Holly, Maureen was convinced. Holly had been kidnapped, and this little abandoned shoe was her only way of leaving a sign for help. At this point, Richard and the two boys took off in the family jeep to search up and down the road for Holly. Their own cursory search of the area discovered nothing, and so Richard turned to the police to report Holly missing immediately an extensive search began. Police deployed officers to scour the area, helicopters to search through the sky, and dogs were released to see if they could track her scent through the woods. As the days of searching for Holly were on, another 10-year-old would be thinking of her. During a sermon at her church, Molly Bish heard about the search for Holly, and she wrote a letter to the Paradian family to express her own sadness that a little girl who was so much like her had gone missing. Truly written in the total simplicity only a 10-year-old could, Molly wrote, quote, I am truly sorry. I wish I could make it up to you. Holly is a very pretty girl. She is almost as tall as me. I wish I knew Holly. I hope they found her. Nothing, though, would be found. Not until October 23rd, 1993, 72 days later, when a group of hunters stumbled onto what remained of Holly buried in the brush of a secluded wooded area off of an abandoned trolley line, Five Ridge Road in Brimfield. She was found just five miles from where she had disappeared. Ten years later, it felt like the history of Holly's disappearance was repeating itself with Molly, and retired police officer Tim McGugan wasn't the only one to think so. In August 2002, Officer McGuggan was going through it, as the kids say, after having served on the Sturbridge force during the time of Holly's abduction. Over the years, he became damn near obsessed with Holly's case to the point where he admitted that it, quote, took over his life. He ended up quitting the police force that fall and decided to write a book capturing his own experiences of trying to solve Holly's murder. And in doing so, he found himself struck by the similarities between Molly and Holly's disappearance. Two young girls, both blonde, both vanished just a few miles apart from the other in eerily similar rural areas. Truly, what were the odds? There was something he couldn't shake about it, so he approached the Bish family and asked if they would allow him to open his own unofficial investigation into Molly's disappearance. They agreed, And with that, McGugan got to work. The similarities between the two cases led McGugan to an idea. If the victim profile was so similar, what were the chances that other aspects of these disappearances were also the same? Given that Holly's remains had been found by local hunters, McGugan started there, questioning those men who had made the discovery. And over time, these conversations led him in May 2003 to crossing paths with another local hunter. Ricky Boudreaux, and Ricky had, quote, something weird to share with him, something he had entirely forgotten about until their chance meeting. At the same time, the state police stumbled onto their own something weird to act upon. As tips so regularly came in, they were still investigated, though most had led nowhere. However, two separate tips came in that seemed to revitalize all search efforts at that point. Two different people had called in about having sighted Molly down in Miami, Florida. Normally, this was a lead investigators wouldn't invest too much stake in, but this time there was something different about the tips. What were the chances, the odds, that it was Molly who had been seen in Miami especially since the callers had each separately seen her within a block and a half of the other sighting. The odds? They seemed good. Just as state troopers were preparing to send an investigator down to Miami though, Magugan and Boudreaux approached them. The something weird Boudreaux had seen months prior wasn't so weird after all. He led Magogan out into an isolated wooded area called Whiskey Hill in Palmer, an area that was mainly known only to hunters, to see if he could find the anomaly he had seen in the brush that fall. It was still there, and what they found, only five miles from Cummins Pond, were scraps of blue fabric, which looked an awful lot like the bathing suit Molly had been wearing when she disappeared. With the discovery of the blue fabric in Whiskey Hill and Palmer, immediately a search began. On June 3rd, a team of 180 troopers and police officers began scouring the 500-acre area in what would truly make this the largest search in Massachusetts history. They were guided by a specially designed anthropological grid. Officers searched literally shoulder to shoulder under brush, in ravines, through hills and over rocks. The blue fabric had been sent to Quantico, Virginia, to be tested against the FBI database, but it would still be days until any confirmation would reach the state police. So search, they did. Throughout the next few days, more discoveries were made, and the first was of a human bone, an upper arm bone belonging to someone between the ages of 14 and 20. The Bishes had been living, as Maggie called it, quote, between hope and hell. As more fragments and intact remains began piling up, including a vertebra and a rib, that limbo the bishes had been trapped in seemed to descend further into hell. And then, on June 9th, 2003, the news they had never wanted to hear, and with it, the most devastating sort of peace arrived. DNA testing performed by the FBI confirmed that Molly had finally been found. She was laid to rest a little less than two months later on August 2nd, which would have been her 20th birthday. The question of where Molly was had finally been answered, but there were still many, many more that needed both answering and asking. Question number one on the minds of everyone, who had done this? Some clues were readily available to start down the road of answering that most important question, aided by the composite Maggie Bish had described to a sketch artist back in 2000, and a criminal profile developed by professionals. The profile of who killed Molly Bish is this. A white man between the ages of 18 and 50, most likely a local to the area, most likely an avid hunter or a fisher, and he would have a history of sexual violence against women. Combined with Maggie's composite of the dark-eyed mustached man with salt and pepper hair, who had a proclivity for smoking, there have been credible leads and persons of interest over the years. There was a Connecticut resident with a kidnapping charge against him in 2005, who was questioned but later dismissed. There was Gerald Battistoni, otherwise known as Confidential Witness Number 62, for the East Hampton County Narcotic Squad. In November 2011, Battistoni was serving a sentence relating to his conviction as a child rapist, saying there was, quote, information that couldn't be ignored that was discovered when he was investigating Battistoni in relation to an unrelated custody dispute, end quote. A private detective named Dan Malley ID'd Battistoni as a suspect in Molly's case. Upon hearing this accusation, Battistoni attempted suicide in jail but survived his attempt. State troopers retrieved a DNA sample to test against the evidence they already had, but nothing ever came of it. And Baddestoni died at Lemuel Shattuck hospital in Jamaica Plains in 2014. And within those leads, this is the one that I think holds the most weight and has the most potential in answering who killed Molly Bish. And of course, like all absolutely bad shape bonkers events, this Next person of interest brings us down to Florida. In February 2008, a man named Rodney Stanger was arrested in Florida. Why was he arrested, you ask? Because he had brutally murdered his girlfriend, Crystal Morris, his girlfriend of just about 20 years, who had made incriminating statements about Stanger being involved with Molly's disappearance just prior to being murdered herself. Let me give you some background on our boy Rodney. In the summer of 2000, Stanger was living in the Warren area in a town called Southbridge and had been living there for enough years that he could be considered a local. Funnily enough, he was living in a house that was just a few blocks away from the YMCA where Molly had attended her weeks-long lifeguard certification course throughout that spring. And by funny, I mean ironic. And by ironic, I mean what the actual fuck. He was an avid hunter and a frequent fisher. Actually, he was known to hunt in Palmer. And he was spotted regularly fishing on the shore of Cummins Pond. Which, you know, he happened to get over to with the use of his brother Randy's white sedan car. Not only that, but Singer had two ex-wives as well as his girlfriend's sister, who all shared stories that brought to light how violent he was known to be, and specifically how violent he was towards the women in his life. But what was he doing in Florida in 2008 when he was arrested for Crystal's murder, if he had been a resident of the Massachusetts area for over 20 years? No one really knows, but all anyone knows is that Stanger and his white car driving brother, Randy, both packed up and shipped out without a word of explanation almost exactly a year after Molly disappeared. And it should go without saying, Stanger very much so looks similar to the composite sketch Maggie Bish had provided eight years prior. When the stars align, they really fucking align. The thing about it is, There are all the details and instances in the world to suggest and support this idea that Rodney Stanger played a role in Molly's abduction and murder. Though he's currently serving a 25-year sentence for the murder of Crystal Morrison, he's never been formally charged as a suspect over Molly's case. And what's more, he refuses to talk about it. Heather, Molly's older sister, claims that she's written several letters to him over the years, and she's only been met with silence. Similarly, but more chillingly, I guess, Tom Shamshack, the PI hired by the Bish family, actually traveled to the prison Stanger is serving out his sentence in and arranged to meet with him. When he got in front of him, Shamshack slid a picture of Molly across the table to Stanger. In his own words, Shamshack shared, quote, when I showed him Molly's picture and I put it in front of him, he looked down, he pushed it away. He could not look at her picture. Molly's case is still open, and just two weeks before this recording, the 20th anniversary of her disappearance was memorialized. How is it 20 years later, and with so many advances that have helped solve so many other cases long considered cold, that we still don't have concrete answers about what happened to Molly? These cases, though, in my mind, they aren't truly cold. They're lukewarm. They're cases that have been placed onto a back burner, but they're warm to the touch if they're remembered, and they deserve as much attention as any other case. Even just two years ago, in 2018, after the Bish family held a memorial event that also served as a means to encourage anyone who knew something to come forward, four people did come forward. And they all shared a similar tale of a man who was visiting a local campground just a few miles from Cummins Pond. As the accounts go, this man was staying at the campground and then left on June 27th, the same day Molly disappeared. That might not seem strange, but what is, is the fact that he reappeared the very next day around 8.30 a.m. and he was covered with scratches and blood all while yelling about, quote, something bad happening in the woods the night before. And stranger still, According to Sarah Stein, another PI working with the Bish family, all of these witnesses shared the same story that, quote, about six months later, he was heard bragging that he knew he was a person of interest in Molly's case, but that he had never been interviewed. In a similar vein, Holly Peranian's case, while not solved with a definitive answer, was given a massive lead by identifying a person of interest, Dave Pouliot, thanks to advanced and enhanced forensic testing in 2012. Though Pouliot died in 2003, it still shows that it's possible. Finding answers to the questions that surround these cases is entirely possible. And it's here that it's time for us to ask our own hashtag fucking questions. Molly disappeared just minutes after being dropped off. So how in the world was this whole abduct how how did this happen had molly been stalked or at least watched by someone prior to her abduction was the entire abduction planned from the start i lean in this direction personally but then it has to be asked what kind of odds are there that maybe this was an opportunistic kidnapping who was the mustache man seen by maggie bish the day before molly was taken was he the same man spotted by the cemetery workers and the individual who saw him at the car wash near Cummins Pond? Is he responsible for what happened to Molly? Why did police wait so long to at least call the Bish family the day of Molly's disappearance? We know they assume that she had run off with friends, but it's notable that once the family knew she was missing, the tone of the police's attitude changed entirely. What could have been done had Molly's disappearance been taken more seriously from the jump? Why did it take so long to find the bathing suit fabric on Whiskey Hill and Palmer? Was it there all along, or did the killer return after the initial searches to hide Molly's body? Is there a connection between Molly's abduction and murder and the kidnapping and murder of Holly Paranian? Is there any sort of link between David Pouliot from Holly Paranian's case and Molly's disappearance why did Gerald Battistoni attempt to complete suicide when he was ID'd as a suspect in Molly's case? What did he know? Why have we never heard about what happened with his DNA sample that was supposed to be compared to other evidence? Who is the man from the campground and what is his involvement in all of this? What did Crystal Morrison know about Molly's disappearance and was the possible knowledge the reason Rodney Stanger killed her? Had Stanger ever crossed paths with Molly during her YMCA lifeguard training? Had Stanger been keeping tabs on Molly after seeing her around Southbridge during that same training? Or instead, had Stanger first noticed Molly during one of his fishing days at Cummins Pond while she was a lifeguard? Why did Stanger and his brother Randy so quickly leave the area they had lived in for over 20 years after Molly disappeared? What happened to the white car Randy Stanger owned that Rodney allegedly used? Is it the same car Maggie Bish saw? Where is Randy Stanger in all of this? And what is his possible involvement with Molly's disappearance? Is Stanger using his Fifth Amendment right to silence to protect himself from self-incrimination? And that's why he refuses to speak about Molly's case? Why couldn't he look at the photo of Molly that Tom Shamshack presented him with? And what really happened to Molly Bish? It's been 20 years since 16-year-old Molly Bish was abducted from her lakeside lifeguarding job and murdered in a truly senseless fashion. It's been 20 years, and throughout them, an entire community of children and parents found themselves traumatized by what had happened to Molly. The very idea of, if it can happen to Molly, it can happen to me. In that time since, her parents have become prominent figures in advocating for child safety. In 2004, they created the Molly Bish Center for the Protection of Children and the Elderly in collaboration with Anna Maria College. And they also founded the Molly Bish Foundation, which focuses on child safety and preventing child abductions. When Molly was abducted, the Amber Alert was three years away still from being invented. That's now a thing of the past. Thanks to the continuous legislating that the Bishes have done over the years, to promote not just initiatives like the Amber Alert, but in making sure children are fingerprinted, amending sex offender registration and notification laws with the times, and even having license plates redesigned in order to make them more legible. And closer to home, the Bishes still hold a memorial every year for Molly in equal parts to remember their outgoing sweet daughter and to highlight the fact that her killer has yet to be found. With the effects of COVID-19 this year, their memorial looked a little different. Instead of the usual gathering at the pond on June 27th, the community instead lit the way from the Bish House to Cummins Pond with candles and windows as Heather, John, and Maggie drove that route. Throughout the day, neighbors and townspeople lined that same path with what Maggie told Mass Live would be, quote, kindness rocks, stones that have been painted and then inscribed with an inspirational message in honor of Molly's own kindness. Honestly, all of this brings to mind that, <laughs> truly timely, the last song in Hamilton when Eliza is asking if she did enough. My heart legitimately hurts thinking if John and Maggie Bish wonder if they've done enough in the memory of Molly. No family should have to go 20 years and counting without having at least justice in the name of their lost loved one. We've learned so much in the 20 years since Molly Bish was abducted from Cummins Pond, but not the most important thing. Who killed Molly Bish? We've brought her home to rest. Now we need to bring her the justice that she deserves. Anyone with information about the Molly Bish case should call the state police tip line at 508-453-7575. It truly is never too late. I'll be back here next week with another hashtag question-loaded story to tell you all. Before I sign off, I want to give a shout out to one of the newest members. Count them, plural. This is a club I know you want to be a part of. <laughs> the newest member of the DA Patreon crew, Christy Malia. Your support truly means the world, so thank you for keeping the figurative DA lights on. While you're waiting for next week's episode to drop, you can find Dark as Hell on Instagram at dark as hell podcast, all one word, and on Twitter at dark as hell pod. Again, all one word. If you want to get in touch with me, you can email your comments or hashtag questions of your own over to me at darkashellpodcast at gmail.com. If you're interested in joining the DAW Patreon crew, you can head on over to patreon.com slash to see what level might tickle your spooky fancy. The first Patreon reward for Da Spooky Crew is actually dropping today, which is exclusive access to an extra episode each month that focuses on a tale of a ghostly nature. This month's episode is surprise. (laughs) It's just me like spoiling. I don't know. The OG American Horror Story. The Mystery of Roanoke. Truly, you don't want to miss this. Come be a part of Da Spooky Crew patreon.com slash dark as hell podcast all that said let's give one more resounding call of justice for molly that phone number for the massachusetts state police tip line is again 508-453-7575 thanks for listening and i'll catch you back here next week ready to get dark as hell all over again (laughs)